Hey everybody, this is of course Gary, and welcome back to yet another episode of Loosen Up the Offense, a program that for sure has a catchphrase, and that catchphrase is, hang loose fucknuts, no offense. Joining me once again, as many times, is my good-for-nothing second cousin-in-law, Dr. Ed. Eddie, how you doing? Oh, hey, Gary. Uh, how are you doing? All right, pithy as ever there, Dr. Ed. I'm doing okay. We, we got a very special program that we're presenting for the good people today. I'm very excited about that. Very happy to be here. This is a slightly different show than some of the ones we normally present. As you know, listeners, and of course you know, Ed, Every week, we get together, we split an eight ball, and we talk about one of three comic books, either the geriatric Jujitsu Goebbels, the ferret, of course, very popular comic book, or until recently, we were covering the series Youngblood, we covered all 197 issues of that comic book. And I thought that we were done with our coverage of this comic book, but then I forgot. I said to myself, I said, Gary, what the fuck are you doing, numbnuts? You forgot about the most important episode in Youngblood's storied career, the blockbuster film, Youngblood, colon, that's a lot of blood, and it's sure not old, from uh, 2009. So today we're going to talk about that movie. I'm very excited about this. That's one of the reasons the show is a little bit different today. The other reason, once again, Eddie, I was unable to procure an eight ball. I I went to my normal connection, Mr. Cloppy, and uh, he had previously been able to hook us up with some horse tranquilizers or alternately, occasionally, some horse cocaine. Right. And uh, he, he said he was plumb out. Fortunately for you, I was able to uh, find some of those uh, psychosomatic mushrooms that you you like to enjoy. Oh. They freak your bean out, make your noodle all wonky. Cyclosibonic, I think they're called. I was able to find those for you. I sent them over to your bunker. Unfortunately, I had a really bad experience with mushrooms one time, and... Uh, I myself am not uh, not so fond of these things. Well, I think I told you. I took them. Um, I was reading about microdosing. Oh, sure, sure. That's where you just this? take a, a little bit of the mushrooms and then you just uh, trip a little bit throughout the day, right? Yeah. So I looked it up on the Google and it said 20 MCGs, but man, that seemed like a lot. You know, and I I knew we had to do the show. MCGs. Yes. Uh, Was that uh, micro machines? I think that's like uh, the first two are like Roman numerals, and then the last one's like a G for grams. So it's some kind of multiple. Oh, so that's a uh, 1997 grams. Right. But that seemed like way too much, so I didn't want to take all 20 MCGs. So I just took like I don't know five grams, which seemed um. It's just, I'm just really enjoying the texture. That's all. Oh, uh, good to hear. It sounds like you maybe accidentally did some macro dosing there. And uh, I guess we will see how that plays out throughout the course of this recording. 
They oh. probably aren't gonna kick in the full effect in the next course of this time, if memory serves, but, uh, well, I guess, you know, you, you play the cards that uh, somebody gives you, and then you got some cards and good for you, as that, the saying goes. That's what they say. Oh, hey, hey, did I tell you I wrapped up my Certificate of Information Security at DeVry last month? Oh, so you already had an honorary Doctorate of Divinity from Babazon, and now in addition to that, you're a double doctor. That's right. Can you yet prescribe us the horse cocaine? No, I'm still working on that. Clompy's been really proprietary about that. Don't get me started on that asshole, okay? We'll get to him, because I got some issues. Oh. Like I was saying, I myself uh, did not partake of the mushrooms. Long story still long, uh, a little while ago... I found myself in possession of some mushrooms, and I was trying to remember the best uh, type of way to take them. And I had recently watched this documentary about an Italian fella who took some mushrooms, seemed to have a pretty good time, and so I thought I will do like this gentleman has done. Hmm. And so I tried to take the mushrooms the same way. I throw them up in the air, they bounce off of my head, nothing happens. I start jumping up and down on the mushrooms, nothing doing. Uh, eventually, I piece things together. It turns out that was not a documentary. I was uh, watching my friend play Super Mario Brothers 3. And uh, I ended up wasting a lot of money on the mushrooms and then later got stuck in my toilet. So not a great experience. I'm thinking no more of these uh, cyclosagonic mushrooms for this guy. (laughs) But fortunately, after I talked to Mr. Clompy, I ran into a time traveler who, uh, who gave me what he assured me was the future drug tech. So, uh, a little bit zooted on that, I think. It is entirely possible that that was actually just uh, broken up pieces of a toaster oven. Uh, upon further reflection, his time machine was really more akin to a 1992 Geostorm that had the word time written on the side of it. Oh, that, that's an easy mistake. I, I would yeah. beat yourself up about it. So I went back to Mr. Clumpy. I leaned on him a little bit. He gave me a big bag of some kind of a powder. He said that it was horse meth, oh, no. which I had never partaken of before. I sold some to some people, and uh, it turns out that that was cumin. So oh, That's really good for your um, joints. Well, it won't be so good for these joints if the people that I sold it to end up finding me, which is why I am recording from this underground bunker. Gotta love a bunker. Sure, sure. I know you set up your bunker at the beginning of what you called the flandemic. I, I wasn't really sure the conspiracy theory you were peddling. If, if memory serves, you were saying that the COVID disease was uh, engineered by big dairy manufacturers to get people to stay home and eat more Mexican desserts. Is that about right? Well, any any custard, really. I mean, okay. creme brulee-demic doesn't sound as good. Sure, that's just for branding purposes. Putting demic, that... I tried everything. Flan was the only... I think you're right. If you're trying to cast asparagus on the, uh, the COVID pandemic, flandemic is probably the way to go. Again, we're going to have to disagree on this point, but uh, yeah, all that backstory is just to say that is why uh, my voice might be a little bit different. I am uh, recoitering in the bunker because I am hiding out from uh, Mr. Clompy's friends. And uh, when I catch up with that asshole, there's, uh, you know, going to be uh, room for one less at the glue factory, if you know what I'm saying.
Because he will be taking up that space because I'm giving him to the glue factory oh, so that somebody they can, else you know, will chop him up and make the glue out of him. Out of his feet because he's a horse. It, it, the threats really work better if you don't spell them out. So uh, I'll, I'll figure out something else to do with Cloppy. Get him some flan. Seems like those rooms treating you pretty good, huh? Yeah, I feel, I feel like myself, but also... Okay, also like maybe a couple other people? What? You feel like yourself, but maybe you also feel like a couple other people? Oh, sure. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I got myself my customary beverage, a tall glass of uh, Robitussin and Clamato. So, uh, you ready to start uh, talking about this uh, fantastic uh, cinematical achievement? I think we would be doing our listeners a grave disservice if we did not. Well, yeah, we don't want to fuck with them. We get a lot of very beautifully written, very heartfelt uh, threat letters almost every week, and uh, I'm not in exactly a hurry to accumulate more of those. Right. <sighs> How's that Clamato Tussin treating you? Oh, you know, it burns. It burns, and it does make me hallucinate just a little bit, but uh, it's a good, clean burning and hallucination. Ah, uh, good. So, young blood colon, sheesh, that's a lot of blood, and it sure ain't old. Fantastic movie. When did you first see it? I'm assuming you saw it in the theater when it came out in 2009. Like, you know, the rest of the world, right? Yeah, I was in the line with the chairs. You know, there were lines, man. Oh, sure, sure. Now, I know some people were waiting outside the theater sitting in a chair. You were actually bringing your own chair into the theater. Because you uh, like to travel with one of those massaging chairs, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you do that now too, right? Don't oh you? yeah, no, you turned me on to that technique. It's, it's, it's a nice time. Oh yeah. You always gotta have your chair with you. Sometimes the usher will come up to you and they'll be like, uh, Sir, you're not allowed to bring a chair in here. Also, that's really more of a massage table and you're lying face down and you can't even see the movie. And, uh, you know, I will say to you what I say to them. Hmm. What are you, a fucking cop? <laughs> hey, it's my catchphrase. Yeah. Everybody loves it. No, you just tell them it's a, a service chair. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Eddie. You got to answer the question. What are you a fucking cop? I'm still not, still not a cop, Gary. Okay, because you got to tell me, otherwise it's in rapture and you go to jail. Uh huh. That's the law. I know my rights. I'm a sovereign citizen now. All right. I, I looked into it. I sent away for a certificate. They told me, we don't make those. And I said, you'll make one for me. Did they? And uh, they didn't, so I made my own. Yeah? To use uh, your laser printer? No, no, that's for, that's for official use only. I use my mimeograph machine, as I always do. It's, uh, it's nice. It's in purple ink. It's on the wall. And uh, it's, uh, it's uh, probably uh, legally binding. I'm, I'm assured. Uh-huh. But back to the movie. Right, yeah. Young Blood, colon... That's a lot of blood, and it sure ain't old. A 2009 blockbuster. I figure we'll dive in, we'll, we'll hit some of the details of the movie, we'll talk about the casting, some little uh, Hollywood backstory gossip type uh, situations here, and then, as we always do, after we have gotten the small details of the issue out of the way, we will move on to the big picture and uh, talk about the plot and how that goes, because really it's secondary to the spectacle in this particular case. So, let's start with some of the backstory. Obviously, based on 
1992 blockbuster comic book, uh, Young Blood by Rob Liefeld. Beautiful work of art. Everybody loves it. And for years that had been in development because everybody wanted to make this movie. It's like a license to print money, which incidentally I do have. I printed one out myself. So next time you're a little strapped for cash, Dr. Ed, you, uh, you come by uh, Gary's bunker and uh, you wait outside because nobody gets in the bunker. I got a trebuchet set up. I'll send you some of the cash that way. Oh, okay. But this movie, it had been in development forever. Everybody wants to make this movie. All the big heavy hitters. And eventually, it gets bought out by the biggest fish in the pond, uh, Canon Films. Oh, they are amazing. Have they ever made a bad film? From The Last American Virgin to Hot Chili, everyone a home run. No bad movies. No, never, never. Not from the good folks at Canon. And so I'm very excited when they find this. And they, they, there's a lot of different legal rights. Uh, Rob Liefeld had uh, sold off some of his characters to one studio, some for another. Different licensing deals. But it all gets consolidated by Canon. And they decide they want to launch the uh, Canon Cinematic Universe. And uh, the young blood, colon, that's a lot of blood, and ain't none of it old is really their first salvo into their field. Mm. So, once they get all the rights consolidated, it takes quite some time. As I said, 2009, the world's finally ready for this uh, beautiful picture. They gotta start finding themselves a director. Now, we all know who the director ended up being, but uh, here's where I did some some research and I poked some things around it, so... I want to slap a big old allegedly in front of all of these things that I'm about to say. So now you can't fucking sue me, estate of Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) You see where I'm going with this? You've probably heard these rumors, but I looked into them. And uh, I'm not saying they're true. You hear me, lawyers out there? But also I'm saying I'm true, non-lawyers. So uh, here's what I found out. Quentin Tarantino, he's signed on. He's very excited to make this comical book movie. Tarantino, as we all know, big fan of the comical books. Mm -hmm. And he signs on to do this one. Everybody's very excited about this. Sure to be a critical success as well as a commercial success. And he's looking at the comic book that it's based on. And here's the part I find a little bit difficult to believe. That he had not read the comic previously. What? I know, he must have been the one person in the world, maybe living on the rock, maybe he thinks it's still in the 50s, like in his diner scene in the movie, Puppy Fiction or whatever. (laughs) I don't know where this guy's head is at, but I know where it went. Because he starts leafing through the comical book, and he notices what I think we've all noticed in these issues at one point or another. There are not any feet on these characters. And he knows that Rob Liefeld is in the contract. It's got to be a very uh, faithful adaptation of this uh, sourcing material. And he takes a look at it and uh, he says, what's going on? There's no Tootsies here. Uh, This is not the Quentin Tarantino kind of a way that things will go. And so he sits down with Rob Liefeld and he tells him, this is according to the legends. What he says, he he gets him over to his house in the dead of the night. And he's like, yeah, Mr. Tarantino. Wait, no, he's Mr. Tarantino. Probably needs to give himself a little pep talk first. So he says, Mr. Tarantino, you got to talk to this Rob Leefield guy. And then he does. And he says, Mr. Leefield, 
Is it possible that you can't draw feet? <laughs> he looks him Tarantino's dead. had the gumption to say that to one of the greatest artists <laughs> of our generation. Well, it was this uh, imposition on Mr. Leefield, this inquisition, if you will, this slight on his character and his livelihood was not to be tolerated. Mm. So, uh, Mr. Leefield... He gets out as he says, you, oh, you think I cannot draw a foot? Is that, is that what I am hearing? And he gets very, very wroth, understandably so. Right. And he draws, this, according to the legends, the most beautiful foot the world has ever seen. And he's like, he says, this, this is why I do not draw the foots on my characters. And he shows it to Quentin Tarantino. And within seconds... Quentin Tarantino died of heart failure and dehydration. Wow. Because he jizzed himself to death. Oh. Because it was the most beautiful foot the world had ever seen. Now, as I said, this has all been hushed-hushed. We've heard the stories, we've heard the rumors, but uh, I, I know a guy who knows a guy, and that guy told me about this guy uh-huh. who knows a lady, and she told me where I could get some horse cocaine, and I did the horse cocaine, and then I looked up this story on the internet. So, the Tarantino that's making movies now is a, a, a double, or a fake. Is that well, what uh, Eddie, what I'm saying, I think, is maybe this macrodosing thing isn't working out too good for you because uh, Quentin Tarantino has been dead since the 2009 and uh, has not made a film. Oh. So anyway, <laughs> at this point, our story gets a little bit interesting because the film gets taken over by uh, Marty Scorsese. Oh. He does the best job with this movie. It is so good. He, he wins an Oscar. It is, I believe, the first Oscar for a uh, superheroic type uh, cinematographer movie to you, Eddie. Ah, oh, okay. They go, uh, they go bonkers over this shit. It's a little bit difficult to remember, but at the time, Martin Scorsese was mostly known for making his gangster movies. Right. And so it's, it's a bit of a departure. He's given carte blanche by the studios. Well, at first, they, they, he, they say, hey, you can uh, cast whoever you want. And then he starts, and then, you know, you start getting the studio notes. But uh, I think things came together pretty good. The interesting thing, though, is Mr. Scorsese has, to this date, not read a Young Blood comic book. He was scared off by the story that he heard about Mr. Tarantino, and he thinks to himself, Marty thinks to himself, I can call him Marty because, uh, yeah, I don't give a fuck. He thinks to himself, Marty, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm not into the Tootsies, but, uh, maybe I don't want to be risking that, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, I could slide for death. Yeah, although, uh, what a way to go. Uh, it's amazing the control that, that Lee Field exercised in, in the comic book. Because the feet in there are, they don't... They're largely non-existent. That is why the, everybody is standing in front of a, a tiny piece of rubble, or uh, has them bent back behind the head for no particular reason. It's uh, really a public service, a very humanitarian effort on Mr. Leefield's part. 
Right. But it did make for some interesting casting decisions because many of these choices were made by Mr. Scorsese without him really understanding who the characters are and uh, based uh, some of them at least on the characters' names. So uh, I figured at this point we should probably start going over the cast. Why don't you start us off, Eddie? What was your favorite casting decision made about this movie? Oh my gosh. That's a big question. It's a real uh, Sophia's dilemma here, as the saying goes. <sighs> if I have to choose. Well, you do. It's a toss up between Cougar and Vogue. Wow, the performances that those characters put in, they really embodied roles. Honestly, they embodied roles so deeply and richly that for the life of me, the act is synonymous with the character to the point I can't even remember who they were. What was the actor's name who played the, the Kuga in this? A lot of people don't know this on account of the makeup and everything, but I think if you look closely at that hair, you will recognize one of your favorite saxophone players. That is Kenny G. Is that to Kenny G? Oh, that's right. I forgot. Every time I forget, I think to myself, that Kenny G is a remarkable cougar. And then I look at him and I'm just like, that's the cougar. That's all I see. When I, when I see the fella, I don't even think about the toot toot man, mm -hmm. uh, as his, you know, his nickname is. But uh, yeah, boy, did he do a terrific job with that wonderful and fully original character. Oh, it's just... Uh... They didn't even let him make any movies after that, because it was like a, was a microphone dropping, as the kids say. Oh, sure, sure. I know when the book first came out, there were some people, and I'm embarrassed to say myself included, who thought that maybe this cougar character was not a fully original character. He is, uh, you know, a, uh, a feral uh, man-creature who's all furry and can't always control his animal instincts. Does this uh, maybe remind you of another character who's very popular in all forms of the media? Well, the ferret. That's what I'm saying. I thought at first it was the ferret, but once you get into the book, you realize totally different backstory. Uh, really just uh, maybe an example of a, a paralleling evolution type of thing. Yeah, so it's between Kenny G's The Cougar and uh, Vogue, a.k.a. Nikola Voganova, you know. Oh, sure, Nikola uh, Voganova. That's uh, the, the uh, famousest of people's... Voganova was played by... This one was a little more spot on, obviously. Because uh, they got the spots on their face! That's I love that! That's pretty good! I don't know how Victoria Beckham found the time to do this between wrapping up the return of the Spice Girls 2008 tour. That thing made like $170 million, too. So It like, is a she didn't tiny even... little potato that's compared to the, the film. She got a percentage. I, I'm of just saying movie, she I didn't know. need the money. And, and then going right from that to be a guest judge on uh, Germany's Next Top Model later oh, sure. th that year. I mean, talk about a renaissance woman. Well, and uh, nor was she the only character associated with the reality television who ended up being cast in this film. Nowadays, you probably think of her solely as an actress, and uh, specifically the actress who played Riptide. But uh, here's a little-known fun fact. The actress who played Riptide formally got her start on reality television. I'm referring, of course, to popular superstar actress Susan Boyle who uh, made her debut singing opera on uh, the UK's Got Talent type of show. 
and uh, really just went on to a body to roll a riptide. Did a beautiful job. Gosh, just uh, what a performance. That's why the soundtrack works. When she comes out on that wave and you uh-huh. hear that swelling, beautiful music, that's Susan Boyle singing. Yeah, she's singing the Rite of the Valkyries. And not just the word parts, but the music parts. Just singing the... Dun. Yeah, I can't sing it myself, I always thought that, that is, is Riptide's theme, but I guess you're right. That is that is the Ride of the Valkyries, technically. Yeah, uh, bizarrely, uh, that was not the first option to play Riptide. Initially, they wanted to have uh, Jan Michael Vincent play the character, and then Mod Scorsese was like, oh, I'm thinking of Airwolf. Right. But really, Susan Boyle just made the role her own, uh, and that is why Riptide sings an operatic-type song in each one of the movies. Uh. Um each one of the many, many sequels to uh, the movie uh, Youngblood. Uh, now, uh, let, let's interrupt the, the casting here, because he has a time for another uh, trivia fun fact. Okay. And it explains what some people would call some kind of an oyster egg that people might find in the film. Wait. A what? An oyster egg. They, they don't have a... Uh, do they let oysters have eggs? Yeah, it's called a poil. Oh, so gotcha. a poil is an oyster egg. Okay. That's why you would call something that's in a movie that's like a beautiful poil that you find that you have to anoint. That's a special thing for some people who knows about oysters. Like a jewel. Yeah, it's a beautiful jewel. I heard some people thought at one point that it was called uh, Easter eggs. And they, uh, you leave an Easter egg there, nobody notices it. Then uh, what you get is uh, you get some uh, food poisoning and a nasty smell. A bad egg. And, uh, but you leave, a, you leave a, a beautiful oyster egg, or a poil, if you will, lying around. Then you get a nice gem that you get to give to your, your honey bunch and uh, say, hey, how about that? You can put that on a necklace. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the, the oyster egg that I'm talking about that this movie has for itself is, uh, you know how there's the opening scene mm-hmm. and how it seems a little bit incongruous at first. And you're like, well, I, uh, I don't know what, I don't really understand why is, uh, Rob Lowe there? What's he doing hanging out? It starts off, Rob Lowe shows up and he's dressed like a hockey man. And he says, hey, everybody, it's me, Rob Lowe. I'm here to play hockey. And then Chapel shows up and shoots him about a million goddamn times. And then the blood spray makes the words young blood on the movie screen and everybody goes nuts. Yeah. What is the hockey connection? Oh, well, yeah. See, technically, and due to the rights issues that was established by this film, it is technically has to be considered a sequel to the uh, 1986 hockey movie, Youngblood, in which Rob Lowe plays the character Richard Youngblood, who's a hockey man who uh, loves to fight at the time, but he can't do it too good. That's right. That's right. That's why the Canadian Hamilton Mustangs. Yes, yes, that's why they appear in all of the films. It is a contractual obligation. Now, they needed to get the character out of the way. I think Mr. Lowe was a little bit confused that day. Maybe that is why he said, hello, it's me, Rob Lowe, instead of it's me, Richard Youngblood. But uh, that is why they have that scene at the beginning of the movie. And uh, it really establishes a tone for the film. And then, of of course, (laughs) Sci-Fi comes in up there and he uses his uh, his mystical whatnots to 
to it to then pick up a paintbrush and write the words, that's a lot of blood and is sure not old. On the movie screen, crowd goes nuts, everybody loves it, it's a wonderful time. And that's it, that's it, just uh, one of the, the oyster eggs that I wanted to fill in for you, you folks out there in uh, listen land. Let's get back to the cast. Sure, so you, you asked me who my favorite was, I, I gave you two. You want to tell me who your favorites are? I gotta say, it comes down to two for me as well. The first one is a little bit on the nose. As I said, when he initially did some of the casting, Marty, as I call him, had not yet read the comical book. And so he's just going by the name. And that is why Die Hard is played by Bruce Willis. (laughs) I was wondering. It was a transformative role for him. I mean that literally. He had surgery during this film because he plays a robotical type of fella. And so he actually had his emotions removed out of his brain because he didn't want to emote as an actor. And he thought they would be able to put them back in after the movie, and they were not. And that is uh, why, since this movie, you have seen all of the uh, Bruce Willis uh, performances that you have in films. As really remarkable level of commitment. I'm amazed he has been able to find so many roles that do not require him to emote or look like he gives a shit or even knows where he is for the past uh, 15 or so years. I don't know. I'm not a mathematician like you, Dr. Ed. I know you've got your uh, master's in abacus studies from uh, DePaul. DeVry. Oh, right, right, right. You had a big uh, badminton rivalry with DePaul. That's why I was thinking of that. That's what it was. It was the badminton. Yeah, I know you love your alma mater. Uh, What's the mascot of uh, DeVry again for your sports teams? Oh, yeah, that's the uh, DeVry penguin. Oh, yeah, yeah, the fighting penguin. That's like the king penguin, actually. Oh, not the emperor penguin, the better known emperor penguin, just the king penguin. penguin, uh, yeah. He's pretty good still. That's a pretty good penguin. Gosh, I don't even know if I say this is my favorite, but I think it is one of the more interesting casting choices that was made for this film. Everybody we've talked about so far is you can kind of see it coming. You know, the Kenny G, the Victoria Beckham, the Susan Boyle, the Bruce Willis. It's like it's going to be on somebody's short list. Now, this one requires a little bit of backstory, and it took people a bit aback at the time. So I'm going to start with the story. I'm talking, of course, about the character Sentinel, who is a very powerful man. He's a genius. He flies around in a metal robot men's suit, and he does the fighting, and he kind of puts together at least the away team of Youngblood in a lot of ways. He's a real team leader, but still uh, kind of brash, kind of khaki. You know, he's, uh, he's got some things going on with him. Now, initially... The studios, they had their mindset on a certain actor they wanted to play this role. Sentinel, he, he is a black fella, and uh, so they thought they would want uh, a fella of that persuasion to be a uh, star in the role. And so they had seen the movie Tropical Thunder, which had come out in 2008. And they thought, oh, you know who would be good in a flying around in a robot man suit? This, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Or, uh... Ah, uh, Too Ditu, as I believe he's called, for his nickname. And they think he would be great in this role. Later they find out he is not, in fact, a, a black fella, which would have been enough to give some people pause right there. But he was still in the running for the role. Until he made another film. I think you know what I'm talking about. It was a huge flop. He starred in the movie Iron Man. Mm. 
Uh, people only remember this movie because of how little money it made. Uh, from that point forward, R2-D2 uh, man is uh, a uh, box office poison. And uh, no, nobody could make a movie with this fella. But the stu- you know how the studio guys are. The studios, they get an idea in their head. And they're like, hey, maybe there's another actor that uh, Robert Downey Jr. Is, uh, has a similar vibe to, is the way I believe they would phrase it in the executive land. And so they start looking at other roles that he's played. And that is why Sentinel is played by uh, CGI Charlie Chaplin. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's weird when you look at it, and at first it took a lot of people aback to have the little tramp be uh, Iron Man in it around with his little mustache and flying around and beating up Hassan Hussein, a very original character who appears in both the comical book and the film as the bad guy. Mm-hmm. But I gotta say, you can't argue with success. And uh, the CGI Charlie Chaplin just did a remarkable job with the role. They decided wisely, in my opinion, against putting him in blackface and decided to balance out the casting in another way. And uh, that is because uh, Marty Scorsese casted the role of Shaft, the Archer Man, in the uh, comical books Mm -hmm. by uh, Richard Roundtree. Oh, an homage. Yeah, and yeah, Switcheroo, you balances the books the diversity-wise, and uh, it's a really interesting role. I don't think it was intentional, but the way that it played out actually led to another of my patented uh, oyster eggs. Because you remember the scene where Shaft, the Archer Man, mm-hmm. uh, is standing around in the mall before he goes inside to do a shopping with his girlfriend. And he sits there and he's thinking about, oh, I'm, a, I'm an Archer Man. And then he looks up and he very slowly and very deliberately eats six hot dogs in a row mm-hmm. and two cartons of orange juice. Mm-hmm. And then he looks at the camera and he winks and says, that's... Definitely the most hot dogs that a man can eat at one time. Wink. And he actually says the word wink, too. But that's because at one time the chef fell into books, of course, ate the seven hot dogs. So it's a funny joke that everybody loves. And it's, it's a good time. It's a, I hate to even call it an oyster egg because the poils is usually hidden inside the shell. And this is kind of right out on Front Street, just kind of flashing his oyster junk at every passerby. But uh, it's still a pretty nice moment in the film. That's and a, I got to yeah. say, uh, Richard Rountree earned those uh, seven Oscars for this film and its subsequent six sequels. I'm sorry, I'm just having a little trouble following. He's in the mall. Was that the, yeah, did sure. he eat the hot dogs before or after the pen scene? Oh, it's before the pen scene. It's, it's near the beginning of the movie. You know, you'll remember this, of course, Eddie. I know those mushrooms couldn't have kicked in that hard for you. It's like a 15-minute scene. They did not cut away from him at any point as he is eating these hot dogs. It's in part why you ended up with, of course, a three and a half hour film. But I think it's really worth it for the the cinematicalness of the whole scene. Just beautiful work there. But uh, enough of that oyster egg. Let's get back to the cast. Sure. Who else have we got in this film? We've got, of course, the fan favorite character of uh, Bedrock. 
Why don't you talk about it? I know you love talking about this character and the way he was cast and the decisions that went into it. Try to shut this any guy up about Bedrock oh. if you had a party. You won't have a lot of luck, I'll tell you that much. This is just one of the most heartwarming characters. Like, he's this big, strong guy. Oh, so, so strong. Thomas John McCall. Ah, uh, everybody just hearing the name is, gives me the, the goose buggies. This is a kid that loves his mom. Sure. At the end of the day. Yeah, so. I, I disapproved in some of the sequels when they uh, kind of extended that a little bit. I'm glad they made those non-canonical. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. So I don't know how they managed to get Dolph Lundgren for this role, but oh. man, like he was busy doing uh, Universal doing Soldier uh, Regeneration with his buddy Jean-Claude Van Damme. Sure. But my God, am I glad they did because he's a big guy and you need a big guy to play Bedrock, who is also a big guy. Well, and they had spent so much of their special effects budget at rendering the uh, CGI Charlie Chaplin that they needed to have actually big actors play the bigger characters. Mm-hmm. Of course, after the success of this film, the budgets go through the roof, but for this one, I kind of appreciated the way they used some more practical effects with a lot of the choices that was made. You know what I mean? I guess, but the thing I will never understand that little bit of Hollywood magic is how you can take a little fella and make him look like a big fella. You know who I'm talking about? Well, there's a couple that it could be, but uh, uh, why don't you tell me which one you're talking about? I'm talking about Mr. Bruce Stinson, a.k.a. Chapel, who we were talking about. Oh, sure, Chapel. Yeah, yeah, the, he's the fella, he shows up, he shoots the, the Rob Lowe character with his gun and makes the title sequence appear. He's in a lot of scenes, obviously. He is a pretty big guy in the movie, big, strong guy. Oh, but sure, he's sure. played by uh, another actor from uh, Canon Films fame. I think you would recognize him as Tony Turbo Ainley from Breaking 2. That's right! Michael Boogaloo Shrimp Chambers played... That big guy chapel, so they must have just filmed him from the, I don't know, from like the knees up to make him look tall? Well, they do things with perspectives in these movies. They put him a little bit closer to the camera, and they will put maybe your Richard Roundtrees or your CGI Charlie Chaplin's a little bit farther away from the camera. And it makes, you know, the one person look the bigger guy, and then the other fella look like he's maybe not so itsy-bitsy. You see what I'm saying? I do, but man, the, the grace that that character brought to the violence that Chapel was able to administer using, of course, his dancing skills, I assume, oh. was just a thing to behold. It is like a beautiful ballet of brutality that is unfolding on the screen in front of you. And you're right, they do not call this fella the Boogaloo Big Fella. But uh, they might as well after they see this film, because golly, did he do a nice piece of work on that character there. I loved that. And uh, yeah, as I said, it was all done with practical effects. They just, they changed the perspective. They uh, lined things up differently. They give him a little tiny soda can to hold. And uh, next thing you know, you got a big fella instead of a little fella. It's the magic of cinema. Well, and it's interesting because they needed to save some of this money because uh, in Mr. Robert Leefield's rider, he had a final cut and he did insist that every character in this film have tiny little lines all over their faces to best mimic his really just uh, exemplary artistic style. 
And I think it was the right choice, obviously. If you see a Youngblood character and they don't have little lines all over their face, you'd be like, what the fuck? Maybe I macrodosed like Dr. Ed over there. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it just doesn't seem right. It's uh, one plus one doesn't equal whatever one plus one normally equals. I'm looking at it right now, and uh, it, his lines are very fluid. Oh, it's beautiful. No, I mean, I mean, they're like fluid. Oh, okay. Like they're flowing into each other and maybe melting a uh, little bit. Is is that happening uh, when you're looking at the video on my face too? I, I don't know how he was able to do that. Lee, Leefield is a master. A master. Sure, sure. He he really is. But but that that is why. To save money, the studios decided to cast, as you've noticed from our list, mostly older actors, so that they would have the lines on their face already, and you could save some money from having to CGI them in afterwards, because, uh, as I said, they really blew that money on the uh, CGI Charlie Chaplin. But that is why the character Brahma, the big, strong, uh, beefy fellow who's like, oh, I'm gonna smash all of this stuff, that's, uh, that's his catchphrase, of course. Right. But that is why he was played by Robert Redford. Uh, and he just did a wonderful job, and a terrific actor. There's probably a, a map to uh, his house on the back of the Declaration of Independence, uh, because that man is a national treasure, as is fully events from his role as Brahma and his catchphrase, Hey, I'm gonna smash all of the things because I'm a big, strong fella. You really need the squarest jaw that you can find in Hollywood to play the Brahma character. And I think they, sure. I think they, sure. they pulled it off. And the one with the most lines all over his face for no particular reason. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you need that, you go to Mr. Redford. And you're not sorry that you did. So, uh, I, I know, Ed, that you are a huge fan of the character Photon. Photon of, of course, the shiny uh, space alien who's got the magic space fire that they throw at the people. What did you think of that casting decision? Well, you know, like a lot of people leading up to the release of this film, I was on pins and needles of if we were going to get the male photon or the female photon, because as you know, he's a, a Curian and, and they switch their gender every seven years. Well, of course, of course. So. But as we all know, we, we ended up with the male photon, and I, I think you well, were... Well, for, for the first couple of films, anyway, sure. Speaking, speaking of uh, Oscars and how many came out of this film, I think in 2009, during the Oscars, everybody was just absolutely shocked that Sean Penn got it for his role in Milk, which a fine film, fine film. Yeah, no, it was pretty, pretty good. Not enough story. milk in the film was my main argument against it. I see a movie named Milk. I want uh, everybody to be drinking dairy products. And uh, I don't know. I, I think uh, Big Dairy maybe didn't get their money there, which is why they had to cause the whole flandemic. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. You're coming around. Now, I finally sent you enough YouTube videos. Well, I find that the more of this Clamato and Robitussin and I drink, the more your theories start to make sense to me. It is a gift that I have. I give you the gift of... Well, you give me the gift of Robitussin occasionally, yeah. and then I drink it, and then I find that the things you say start to make a little bit more sense. Exactly. But I guess my point is, it's, I, I think his role as Photon got really short shrift with him getting the Oscar nod for his other role in, in Milk. That's all. Oh, the Sean Penn? Sean Penn's fire hair is off the charts incredible. It is green and wiggly. It's the best fire hair that I've 
scene. It's wonderful, wonderful fire hair that he has. He does a wonderful job. And a few years later, when his role is taken over by Tawny Katane, she also does a remarkable job. Just a great work all around on the character Photon. Can't say enough good things about it, so you know what? I'm going to stop trying. And instead, I'm going to move on to the character uh, Sci-Fire. Now, what did you think of this guy? You love to not like him so much. You know what I mean? Like, he's, uh, he's a on the side of the good guys, but he's not such a good guy. Am I right? He's a complex this? character. Sure, he's a complicated man, and uh, nobody understands him but his woman, who, uh, oddly enough, in this movie, is named John Shaft. We don't have time to go into that. Instead, this is another, another one of my, my patented oyster eggs. Initially, Marty Scorsese, he hears the name Sci-Fi because he had the comical book read aloud to him uh, because he didn't want to accidentally look at a Tootsie and jizz himself to death. Right. Uh, understandable, understandable. So he hears uh, Sci-Fi and he's like, oh, you know who should play uh, Sci-Fi? Probably a guy who writes Sci-Fi. So he wanted to cast Isaac Asimov. But at that <laughs> point, the studio really put down their foot. They're like, well, he's dead and he's not an actor. And we already spent all our CGI money on Charlie Chaplin. So uh, that's, uh, that's a no-go for me right here. Which is why Sci-Fi is, in fact, played by uh, Sir Nicholas Cage. Uh, he, he was knighted for his role. You know this, of course. He's uh, the first knight of the United States. Uh, and that was, uh, that was actually done. Uh, the president knighted him due to his role in this film. Uh, it, it's hard to think of sci-fi without Nicolas Cage these days. I would say it's, it's, it's impossible. Yeah, well, you know, and we would be remiss if we did not talk about the final star of this team and this film. I know he's one of my favorite characters. He sure fills out those space ash cash bagashes pretty nice. I'm talking, of course, about combat. Oh, my And mutton shot Marvel himself, eh? Yeah. And, you know, it, it took a special somebody to bring the subtle humor to the role of this big galoot who just loves beating people up. I can't get enough of it, this combat guy. If you ask him, like, would you like a plate of delicious potatoes or would you like to maybe punch a fella? I know there's not going to be a lot of potatoes eaten that day. Exactly, exactly. But it, it then he makes you laugh at the same time. And so that is why I think I speak for everybody, really, when I say thank goodness that Terry Crews took a break from playing uh, Julius Rock on uh, Everybody Hates Chris. He left the show to do this picture. Yeah, yeah, and he embodied that role beautifully. Had uh, mutton chop implants put in. He could grow his own, but he thought that the implants looked better. And uh, he actually provided his own uh, space overalls, too. Nobody knows where he got them. But apparently, at some point, Terry Crews went into space and got some overalls. He's a true artist. Uh, it's that kind of a dedication that he, he went through the trouble of inventing his own spaceship. Just to make some overalls. Hey, you know, he picked up a hefty sponsorship from Ash Cash Bagash, of course. But uh, what a thespian, what dedication. Agreed. So that's most of the cast, but I think we would be in remittance if we did not talk about some of the cameos that were in this movie. Because as I said, it launches the Canon Film Cinematic Universe. There's, of course, the very uh, famous scene where 
You have, I don't even know how they did it to this day, but where the Boogaloo Shrimp plays the characters when he has the uh, chapel interacting and doing a little dance around uh-huh. with Toybo? It blew my goddamn mind. I nearly pulled a Quentin Tarantino when I saw that, if you know what I mean. I still, to this day, don't know how they did it, because it really looks like they're right next to each other in the same room, but it's the same actor. It's so good. It's so good. But that's just one of the many cameos. And really, the idea of expanding this universe and tying in all of these different superhero characters and other characters from the canon-type film canon, if you will, into this movie is what made it just the phenomenon that it was. I think one of my favorite ones was the recurring thing where you remember that van is like a VW van that Zeke from the geriatric jujitsu gerbils would drive. Oh, sure, sure. At that time they got lost in the desert or they couldn't figure it out. And that van keeps showing up. And then every time it shows up, it's got different guys from the canon trilogy in there, and it helps our heroes out. It is heartwarming. It is something. And in addition to the characters popping out of the van, saying their lines, saying their, their catchphrases, you do have all of the Goebbels, played by Paul Giamatti, jumping out there and interacting with the young blood heroes. It just... It was heartwarming, and it really opened up my heart, metaphysically, and uh, it made me believe that miracles could really happen, you know? I mean, I was going through a pretty rough time right then, as you remember. I uh, had just gone through that whole fiasco where I thought Super Mario Brothers 3 was a documentary. It led to not only the uh, dropping mushrooms on my head, jumping up and down on them, getting stuck in a toilet, but uh, also... (laughs) I needed to get that turlet replaced, and uh, it, yeah, I, I'm sorry, it's, it's a little bit hard for me to, to talk about, but I, uh, I, I did try to, uh, to eat a leaf and then jump off a building, because I thought if I had a raccoon tail I could fly, this would turn out to be not the case, but after I see this film, I'm like, hey, don't cry for me, Arsenio, because I'm doing all right if Paul Giamatti could be in the Goebbels and then also be in a Youngblood movie. All right, that and that getting your PlayStation on lockdown. Well, yeah, that, that was also probably for the best. Uh, I, I don't know how I was able to play the uh, Super Mario Brothers 3 on a PlayStation, but I was. And so that was a good time for everybody until, yeah, as I said, I maybe took uh, the wrong lessons away from that uh, particular video game. Man, the, the one where Zeke shows up oh. and, he's, and he's got fucking Cobra. Yep, Sylvester Stallone. With he's the like glasses a, and the yep. machine gun. In the back, and he's like, get in, boys. (laughs) Ah, and then he follows it up, and he's like, not having a Youngblood movie is the the disease, and this movie is the cure. It's a little bit fourth wall breaking, but oh my god, just like if you break an actual fourth wall, it brought down the house. I still remember the, the first time I went and I saw that in the theater, and he looked right out at the audience, and he said that people lost their minds. 
Of course, and you know what? Uh, I think pursuant to our interests in this uh, program that we put on, I would be, again, in remittance if I did not point out the uh, wonderful cameo that uh, one Mr. Cal Denton had in this film. Uh, and we talked about the, the ways that they were using the practical effects. They had Cal Denton, the ferret, of course, played by an actual ferret. They just shot him real close up and uh, then had his voice done by Ray Liotta. And gosh, it was the perfect choice. It made my hat get up and do a little song and dance that was so beautiful, it might have as well have been sung by the ferret himself. Oh, but Gary, the credits when uh, it's all Cal Denton songs, that's what keeps the audience in the, in the seat until that uh, Easter egg at the end. I'm sorry, a what at the end? Oh, sorry, an uh, oyster uh, egg. Just some kind of a rotted, sulfurous chicken excretion? I got, mix, I got mixed up. Uh, this otherwise fine film? Is po- that what you were saying? No, I, it's, a, it's a, the poil at the end. Well, are you making fun of my accent now? Is that what I'm hearing uh, from you, Ed? From you of all people? No, sorry, that's just... Uh, what? Just because... I am from wherever it is that I am from. You think it is fair for you to make fun of the words and the sounds that come from my mouth as though I am some kind of uh, stereotypical whatever kind of word talking I'm doing? I'm sorry, that was the tussing. It's, it's okay. I'm a little emotional. I'm having trouble tracking again. You look like, do you have the, you don't have the cat filter on the video call. Uh, no, no, that is uh, definitely happening on your end with the, uh, psychosyllabical, uh, mushrooms. So, uh, you know what, uh, we, we, let, let's, uh, let's move on a little bit. I, I do want to mention one more of my favorite cameos, though. I'm of, uh, talking, of course, to, uh, not only did he play Cobra in this movie, but Sly Stallone, he pops back in as, uh, his character Lincoln Hawk from Over the Top. And, uh, not only does he show up, but he really ties the whole canon cinematic universe together with the Image comical books and sets up one of the spin-off titles that this gets when he makes his famous phone call. I'm laughing just thinking about it. He uh, shows up. It's a a close-up of his face. He's making a call on his CB radio. And he says, uh, Hey, Shadow, this is your cousin, Lincoln. Lincoln Hawk. You know that new brutalizing people and breaking their spine thing you're looking for? Well, check this out. And then he, uh, he shoves the CB radio out into the air. You know what I'm talking about, of course, Ed. And yeah, you see that uh, Combat is snapping a spine over his back. And that, of course, ties into Shadowhawk being a guy in that Image Comics who loves to break people's spines. What a wonderful, wonderful joke. It wasn't until probably my seventh or eighth viewing of it that I realized that traditionally CB radios do not have a visual component. It makes a pretty distinctive noise, I suppose, though, when Combat snaps his spine over his knee. Ah, just a a wonderful time, a a wonderful film, and uh, I could not say enough uh, particularly nice things about it. I think we can all agree with that. Well, 
Dr. Ed, I've had a lovely time talking with you about the little details of this film. But uh, as we always do on this show, I think it's time for us to take another sip of uh, Clamato and Robitussin. And uh, respectively, I don't know if you want to drop any more of the shrooms, if you got any more of them at this point. And then step into this segment that we call uh, The Big Picture. Well, what do you think of that plan, Eddie? I don't have any more, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch to the uh, Clamato Tussin. All right. Well, uh, I invite you at home to fix yourself up a Clatussin and join us. And, of course, our uh, good friend Alan is going to sing us into the big picture with his beautiful song. There's a guy named Cory, and he likes to eat farts, and he's not on the show, but he sure eats farts, and he eats those farts, and he says yum yum. And eat them up about every day. Does he think they taste good? I don't know. Does he have a fetish? Probably. But that doesn't matter, because now it's time for the big picture. Corey eats farts. <laughs> well, thank you once again, Alan, for that beautiful song. Uh, we both love to hear it every week. I don't know what it frankly has to do with our show. Or who the fella that you're singing about is, but uh, frankly, he sounds like a real creep. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Alan. Very nice. Well, now that we're in the big picture, it is, of course, uh, time for us to talk about the plot to this feature film. As I said, based on the plot of the uh, blockbuster comical book from uh, 1992 by the Rob Liefeld, as in the book, none of these characters actually have feet. Uh, it was a bold choice. It made things a little bit more difficult to do. But uh, I think it, it paid off in an interesting way. Let's just dive in and start talking about the plot. Sure. So it starts off, our hero, Shaft, as played by Richard Roundtree, of course, is eating his six hot dogs. And we got about 15 minutes of that. And he goes into the mall with his beautiful girlfriend, I forget, who plays his girlfriend in this, the District of Toyney? Oh, yeah. That's, uh... Yeah, what is, what is that actor's name? She was in the thing with the, uh... Oh, right, right, right. The thing with the stuff and the people? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. um, that's, uh, Marky Post. That's right. Marky Post from Night Court. So, so Richard Roundtree and Marky Post are walking into the mall. And they're doing a little bit of shopping. And everybody's like, hey, aren't you Shaft? And he says, his catchphrase, you're damn right. And it's just, it's a beautiful time. The, the movie's starting off and then you, you start to see, oh no. There's somebody, they do a close-up, a fella's stealing something from somebody. And so then he runs away. And Shaft is like, not on my watch. And, and he, he jumps over and he starts punching the guy in the throat as hard as he can about 150 times. It's impressive. And then he says, oh, maybe I shouldn't have eaten all of those hot dogs. Uh, his other catchphrase from the film. <laughs> He's beating a fella up, uh, something fierce, and then uh, the bad guys show up. And uh, why don't you take it from here, Ed, for a little bit? The bad guys show up. It's just too exciting for me to keep talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Turns out that the kid who he's doing all the throat punching on was like a distraction because the real deal is the bad guys are up there in the mezzanine in the food court with the assassination rifle. Uh-huh, yeah, the, the assassin guys. They're up there in the food court. They just come out of Panda Express. There's another point where the studio recoups their losses on the CGI 
And then, then they say, uh, this is some tasty orange chicken, but I don't care for it because I'm a terrorist. If you don't eat Panda Express, you're probably a terrorist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really pioneering product placement. So anyway, the yeah. orange chicken hitting terrorist. Which is how they're credited in the credits of the film. Well, yeah, that's, you know, goes without saying. So he's got his, his sights trained on a young, older Richard Roundtree. Uh-huh. He doesn't have his arrows, Gary. He's oh, at, no. He's in the mall. Normally, he's got his arrows. You know what he does? What's he going to do without his arrows? He's going to reach into his pocket, and he's going to grab a ballpoint pen, and he's going to wing that sucker all the way up to the mezzanine, lodging it in the throat of his uh, terrorist. And with his dying words, the terrorist says, of course, is uh, patented, I wish I'd just eaten orange chicken. Yep, and then he gurgles to death and falls off the food court down to the, uh, um, so it's either like a swimming pool or a fountain that's in the mall for some reason. Yeah, well, it's one of them fancy pants malls. You don't expect a shaft to be shopping at a regular civilian mall, do ya? No, of course, of course not. Well, and then that leads to, of course, my favorite line in the film, maybe, which is when uh, Mackie Post says, I guess the penis mightier than a sword. And then, of course, Shaft says, I, I think you mean pen is. And then she says, well, when it's written out, it looks like penis. <laughs> it didn't quite make sense. I think they were going to put that in the outtakes, but for continuity reasons, they left it in. And I'm glad because it really does work. I guess the penis mightier than the sword. They put that on all the t-shirts for the movie. Well, Scorsese's a, a real artist. Well, he, he is, and what I love about him is he really just kind of lets things hang out and get all loosey-goosey. That's the directorial style he's known for, yeah, and it really does work in this film. Yeah, good, good lighting, loosey-goosey. Yeah, you gotta have good lighting to see all of those tiny little lines that are all over everybody's face for no particular reason. It's wonderful if you couldn't see them all, and then you wouldn't be able to see the uh, the thigh implants that everyone in the film had to get contractually by Rob Liefeld. And I know that it hindered some of their later film roles that they were unable to do because they were unable to walk effectively. They have to be uh, crated around on dolly trays. But, uh... You know, it's worth it. It's all up there on the big screen. Anyway, after Richard Roundtree, I'm sorry, Shaft, kills the guy, Maki Post says, I guess the penis mightier than the sword. Then uh, Shaft gets a call. He's like, oh, there's something up with some people in the place. And so he makes his calls. We get the big out, putting the team together scene. Those are so much fun. It's a good time. You get the montage music, again, sung by... Ray Liotta as Cal Denton, the ferret, singing his duet with Suzanne Boyle as Riptide. The Saving the Day, the actual song, appeared in a movie before this. It appeared in a little-known film called uh, Ghost Getter Outers, something like that. I can't remember the exact title, but the song Saving the Day is a good song. And it happens, and as it's getting Dolph Lundgren, he's like, Sorry, Ma, I gotta go fight a crime, man. And then, uh... You get your Die Hard, you get your Bruce Willis saying, uh, I'm Roboto and I gotta go fight a crime too, it's Die Hard time. Vogue, she's there, and uh, Chapel's like, Hey, I'm the Boogaloo Shrimp, get out of my bed, cause you're a lady and now it's time to fight a team time. (laughs) 
Uh, which, which was, again, you know, they just, that's what I love about Marty. He just leaves all of these things out there when people refer to themselves by their own name as an actor. And he's so smooth, too. Ooh, the, the Boogaloo Shrine. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, Chapel. Chapel. The Chapel character is so smooth with that lady when he says that. He said just how you said it. Yeah. Like you said, smooth. Yeah. He goes, he puts on his, his face makeup. Uh -huh. Got a skull painted on his face. Is really uh, very intimidating. Very I powerful. believe he is the first big gun holding character to use a skull as his emblem. Really groundbreaking stuff there. Like, uh, who would have thought that a uh, vigilante type hero carrying a gun around could use a skull as the emblem and have it wake? It was truly groundbreaking. <laughs> And so, yeah, the whole team, the, the whole home team as it is, gets together, and then they're like, uh, some bad guys are getting loose. And, you know, of course, it's Strongarm and Gage and uh, the other uh, lady, Kill Blast, probably, and uh, Punch Kick, are all about to bust out of the joint, and uh, they're having a time. And again, all of those characters are played by uh, Paul Giamatti again. He is truly a gift. He's, uh, he's America's grumpy chameleon, is what he's known as, and you can really see in this film where he oins that title, because it's remarkable, especially because he's doing it just with the changes in uh, his flexing and his uh, facial features. There's no makeup, there's no CGI this time. And they're not even doing multiple shots, so he's just moving around real fast and playing four different characters that are interacting with each other, and he does a remarkable job. Or at least he is until Shaft shows up and that throws a whole bunch of pens through his neck, and then he says, uh, penis. A and uh, nobody knows why he said that, but it's funny, so who cares? Uh-huh. <laughs> that's true. That's what, uh, that's what they said in the... The reviews. That's, I'm quoting verbatim Roger Ebert's review of that film. Penis. It's funny. Why? Does it matter? <laughs> Five stars. Which I think would also be a, uh, a fitting review to leave for anything. Not just a movie, but if, say, there was some kind of a fantastical podcast that you like to listen to that was about it, comic books. Uh, just uh, leave it a review that says, penis. <laughs> five stars it's funny <laughs> who wouldn't love that hey appropriate for all ages from 80 to 82 <laughs> and then we get a 45 minute intermission which i appreciated frankly because i needed that time to really uh, get my shit together because i lost it at this movie I was screaming, I was crying, I was scared, I laughed. I'm not too proud to say that I did poop in my pants a little bit like a baby man, uh, because this movie was so good. And so, you know, I need that 45 minutes to really get myself tidied up and get myself into control, and then really settle in and enjoy the second half of the feature. Which, it's odd that it doesn't connect in any way to the first half of the feature. It's like all new characters and no plot resolution to this fight-em-up business. But I didn't even care. 
Oh, that's the thing. It seemed like like nobody cared. Did did you bring a spare pair of drawers with you to the theater? Or did you? Just I go- always bring a spare pair of drawers with me to the theater. Oh, you didn't? No. What did you do when you pooped in your pants like a baby man? Oh no, I I didn't. I didn't do that. But I, what? I, you know what I did do? Well, I'm sorry. I'm confused. Uh, do you or do you not have a two eyeballs and a hat and a sphincter and a colon? I have all of those things. Then how did you not poop your pants like a little baby man when you saw this movie? Well, I had been fasting. Oh. I wanted to be ready. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I fasted, except some electrolytes, and then, uh, but during that intermission, sure. after seeing Shaft eat all of those hot dogs, I did have to go load up on some, uh, some hot dogs. I'm still paying them off. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. No, you're training to see the movie. That does make sense, because I know we had watched previously the other canon film, uh, Kickboxer, and uh, you were like, I'm I'm in training, I'm getting ready, drop these coconuts on my tum-tum. And so uh, that was why I was doing that for you. I remember that now. I did think it was maybe less effective than it was uh, shredded coconut that you were having me drop uh, just a couple at a time. Uh, but they tasted good, so I didn't question it too much. Yeah, it's a, it's a micro-dosing. Oh, you got a micro-dose dropping the coconuts on your tummy. You can't just I get start ya. with a full coconut. No, and that does explain, too. Yeah, okay, between the micro-dosing and that, your excuse at the time was, I believe, like, shredded coconuts get you shredded. Shredded for shredded, that was what you were saying. That's... The abs are shredded, the coconuts are shredded. Same and same, because you went uh, homeopathy at the time. Well, yeah, it's like, you, you want a big brain? You gotta eat walnuts. It's a walnut. Looks sure, like sure, that's, uh, that's why the dinosaurs uh, ended up uh, colonizing space. Uh-huh. Because they had walnut brains and they ate walnuts, and then that's why there's a dinosaur. So. We should probably get back to talking about the movie, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about uh, the part two. Oh, boy, why don't you status off yet, Eddie? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a little more tussing. So, film opens, classic news reading scene. We got uh, SNN as the news channel. Oh, sure. Showing coverage of what's going on with the, the specialized task force going to take care of the, the really bad Hassan Hussein. Oh, boy, that Hassan Hussein, that original made-up character for the comic book, that oh, I think of him, it just it puts many bees in my bonnet, I'm telling you. Not just a bee, a hive of bees in my bonnet. Several bees. A hive, Eddie. That's a lot. And in the bonnet, because this Hassan Hussein... One of the most terrifying and original villains that has appeared on the boards. I say that because this, of course, started off as a stage production, which I didn't even mention before because everybody knows that. Well, yeah. I mean, but if we're being honest, the movie is really what gets people excited. It definitely it took things to a different level, but the, the, uh, I, I gotta say, I saw a young blood call, and that's a lot of blood, and it's sure not old. Off Broadway in uh, 2002. Yet I want to put out there that uh, Jonathan Lipnicki plays a shaft that really makes you think. Oh, I bet. 
So any anyway, 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 yeah. Hussein's got a mustache that will give you nightmares. I, it 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 haunts my nightmares. But there is the uh, another cameo here, and the so we're starting off. It's it's going through the news scenes, talking about the guy, and and there's the news reporter on the ground. You know who that is? You recognize that face? Hey, you know it looked so familiar, but I couldn't quite place He's it. The when guy I was that makes those this. electric cars and the space rockets. Oh right, that inventor right, man who likes to play right, with the flamethrower. Right, Emo Tusk. Uh-huh. Elmo? Is that his Elmo Tusk? That's it. I, I think. Man, what a pasty fuck. I forgot it was him because I was watching it on the VHS tape and there's a little bit of tracking issues when I'm uh, playing this thing. He's only on screen for a few seconds being the reporter, but uh, that's, I think I think people appreciated it. Sure. Now, I forget. Who, who even played Hassan Kusain? That's a... Uh... As, as, I, I mean, it was so transformative, and I see the mustache, that's, that's all I can uh, think of. Was it, that was it, Ben Peter? Kingsley, wasn't it? Yeah, S- Sir Ben. Ah, oh, boy. In fact... Uh, the guy you loves to hate. You know, I, and, uh, I hear that he when he played the character, he just kept all of his old makeup from Gandhi. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. That's what he did. He's <laughs> <laughs> a former Oscar recipient for Best Actor, along with uh, Sean Penn. I bet... When they were there at the Oscars, that's all. This is all they were talking about. Oh sure, no, they had a big old uh, Oscar sword fight. I hear there was another cameo in this. Uh, I don't know if you caught this, but uh, of another Oscar winner, Tom Hanks com- comes into the scene, and, and uh, it's in the background. But if you zoom in on it, by which I mean use your hands to block off the other parts of the screen when you know it's coming up. Mm-hmm. Then uh, you see that Tom Hanks is walking through the background and mouthing the words, I keep two Oscars up my ass to counterweight my enormous balls. Otherwise, I would fall over. It was really a thinker when that happened in a film, and I know it took some people out of it. But uh, to me, that's young blood. Wow. Did you have to slow it down to see that? Oh, sure. I mean, I know a lot of people probably wore out the pause buttons on their VCS and trying to capture that scene and rewatch it. I know I certainly did. Wow. Tom Hanks is amazing. So then they all go to the place. Combat fights a big space alien man that might be his brother and maybe it isn't. Uh, Spoiler, it is. We find out later. There's alien men and the space guys that get brought in by Hassan Hussein, and then Sci-Fire shows up, not, of course, as the studios wanted him to be initially played by Isaac Asimov, but rather by Nicolas Cage, and he, uh, he blows them all up with his brain. He blows up Hassan Hussein. He gives a little speech about, like, I think you're a pretty good guy, because you're a bad guy, and I'm a bad guy, but I'm getting paid more to kill you, or else I would be friends with you. And then he says, also, I do this for free, and then he blows it up, which kind of contradicts what he was saying before, but as again, Roger Ebert's review said, Who cares? It's funny! So he blows up uh, Hassan Hussein's head with his, with his mind. A little-known oyster egg here. 
Nicolas Cage actually learned to blow people's heads up with his mind for this scene. That's terrifying. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, it would be if it was anyone else other than America's Knight, Sir Nicolas Cage. But, I mean, if there's anyone you can trust with terrifying psychic abilities, it is, of course, Sir Nicolas Cage. Little known fact, that scene used more fake blood than any other scene in history. It's very impressive. It used more fake blood and also more real blood than any other scene because they actually ran out of fake blood. And so they went down to the local blood bank and said, give us 80 gallons of your blood. And the blood bank said, uh, we can't do that for non-medical purposes. And Marty, if I may call him Marty, says, uh, it's for the Young Blood movie. And they said, have 90 gallons. Wow. Real patrons. Not all heroes wear capes, uh, is what I'm saying. In fact, none of the heroes in this movie wore capes. But also, those people from the Red Cross, God bless their hats. They made art happen, and they prioritized uh, making this beautiful art over saving uh, ill people, and God bless them for that. Well, it's really a greater good thing, right? Because they're thinking how many... I'm sorry, Eddie, I'm tearing up over here. Aw. I'm as dehydrated as Quentin Tarantino after he saw that beautiful foot picture that Rob Leefield painted. Oh, maybe you should add more Clamato to your beverage. That's a good idea! Thanks. Well, Eddie, I think we're about at the end of our journey here. It's a wonderful time talking about a wonderful movie with you. I loved every second of this. Uh, I'm glad we scripted as much of it out as we did in advance. Uh, because I think otherwise there could have been some awkward moments that didn't quite match up. And thankfully, we put the work in in advance, so none of that happened. So, uh, you know what? Here's to you, Dr. Ed. And, as ever, hang loose fucknuts. Say it with me, Eddie. No, no offense. offense. All right. Until next week. Oh, hang loose, fuck nuts, no offense. Yeah, so that's that's the thing that it is until the next week. All right. Well, see see you later, fuck nuts. Bye. That is cumin. That is a big bump of cumin. <laughs> yeah, it's. I hear it's good for your joints. <laughs> <laughs>